Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. From its emergence in 16th century England, nationalism has been behind nearly every significant development in world affairs, including the American and French revolutions of the late 18th century and the authoritarian communism and fascism of the 20th century. Today, it's a mass phenomenon in China and has gained new life in the United States and much of Europe in the guise of populism. On today's show, Leah Greenfeld, professor of sociology, political science, and anthropology at Boston University, talks with Brookings Institution Press director Bill Finan about her new book, Nationalism, A Short History. She explains her broad definition of nationalism, Shakespeare's role in shaping the language of democracy and modernity, and how modern notions of white nationalism are not nationalism at all. Also on the program, senior fellow David Wessel looks at why the Federal Reserve may indeed cut interest rates and allow inflation to rise. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get information about and links to all of our shows, including The Current, plus Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, and our events podcast. If you like the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find it. And now, here's Bill Finan with Leah Greenfeld. Fred, thank you. And thank you, Leah, for taking the time to talk to us about your new book, Nationalism, A Short History. Thank you for having me. Until I read your book, I used to think about nationalism the way Justice Potter defined pornography. I know it when I see it. But your book taught me it's a far more complicated concept than any simple single definition or caricature I have of it. But even having said that, is it possible to make a broad definition of what nationalism is? Yes, it is possible. It is possible to make such a broad definition and, in fact, necessary because people usually don't understand what a very important force this is. It is basically the cultural framework of everything modern, of modern society. Mm. And what makes it this cultural framework? It is a new perspective on reality. It contains a completely new perspective, new image of reality. First of all, of social and political reality. And our consciousness, the consciousness of all modern people, is in fact national consciousness. What is this new image of reality? It is the image of Humanity naturally divided into sovereign communities of fundamentally equal members. It is very different from the consciousness that existed before it, that is, before the 16th century. And it is, as you can see from that very definition, sovereign communities of fundamentally equal members, it is essentially the definition of democracy. So this is the definition of nationalism. It is the cultural framework of democracy. You define it in the book in such a broad and encompassing and world-changing moment, too. And as you mentioned, it begins in the 16th century, and you begin, actually, by using Shakespeare to explain the emergence of nationalism. And you focus on a few of his plays. Why are those plays, the ones you cite, so useful to understanding nationalism's emergence? 
Shakespeare was clearly a genius and more or less single-handedly, certainly more than any other single individual, he captured the essence of modernity, which was, in fact, the essence of nationalism, and he created the language for it. Modern English is very much in debt of Shakespeare. Very many of the concepts in modern English, language which emerges in the 16th century, it is very different from the English that existed before. It is the language of nationalism. It gives us the terms to discuss this completely new reality, this reality imagined in a completely new way. And being a genius such as that, Shakespeare was actually the first in his plays to capture the essential experiences of nationalism. He didn't explain them historically, mm-hmm. also theologically, but he captured them. And in his plays, the historical plays, from Richard II to Richard III, basically, all the Henrys, Henry IV, Henry V, Henry VI, he somewhat anachronistically defined for us the difference between political reality as nationalism projected and political reality as was perceived through the feudal pre-nationalist consciousness. So one can study those historical plays and see the difference in mentality, the difference in attitude, the difference in the relations between the rulers and the ruled. And you see how all of those develop from Richard II to Richard III. You can also see the projection and the capturing of the experiences of modernity that is all based on nationalism in his great tragedies. But this is a different conversation. But Shakespeare is a wonderful source for the understanding of modern reality. One of the most important ideas that emerged from your book for me was how the idea of the individual and equality emerged from or in concurrent with the idea of a nation. Can you talk about how that happened? Well, yes. In fact, you're absolutely right. Equality, perhaps, is the, the core idea. It is certainly the core idea of democracy, right, that emerges in nationalism. So before nationalism, the world, social world, was imagined as created by God on a particular plan. And the plan was to divide human beings into fundamentally three completely different orders, orders that were as different as today we believe species of life. Biological species are different. And those orders were functional orders. They were like different organs in the collective body, and the body itself was fundamentally religious. 
So the upper order was the very small military stratum, and those were people who were supposed to defend the church. So this was the military nobility. Then there was the order of clerics, of clergy, and their function was to mediate between God and humans on earth. And this also was a rather small order. And then there was a huge order, huge stratum, maybe 90% of the population, of common people. They were called the laborers, laboratories. And their function was essentially to support those two upper orders, to see to the survival of the social body. And there was no chance of crossing in from one order to the next or ascending to the highest order if you're at the lowest order. Well, they were imagined as having different blood, you know, just like we imagine chickens and horses to have different genes, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. So it was impossible, it was simply inconceivable for a person to be born, let's say, a peasant and then somehow become a nobleman. It was simply inconceivable. It was inconceivable that somebody who is a peasant could do things that a nobleman could do. It would be like expecting, you know, to ride a chicken or to expect a horse to lay eggs Mm. and to be born a chicken and then you grow up to be a horse. One simply could not conceive of that. So it was somewhat different with the order of the clergy. But it wasn't that important because they were supposed to be celibate. So they didn't reproduce the social structure, didn't participate in the reproduction of the social structure. There was no, absolutely no possibility, not only no legitimacy, but no cognitive possibility for social mobility. Everyone had to be, stay put where one was born. So there was no choice, no freedom on the part of the person to choose one's identity. One's identity was completely, completely prescribed, prescribed more or less genetically, biologically, where you were born. You are what you are born. And there was nothing, no other possibility in for individual initiative. And obviously the rights and the respect due to different orders were completely different. Nobody owed any respect to the huge order of the common people. Absolutely not. It was not their right to expect respect. At the same time, the nobility obviously expected respect. This was their privilege. And in this, they were completely different from the common people. So when we think about equality, for us, equality is a natural desire and right of every human being. But this is a very, very recent conception that comes only with nationalism. The 
fundamental principle of social order before nationalism was inequality. So a just society would be a society which is in a very rigid and orderly way, inescapable way, an unequal society in which people are treated unequally in accordance with where they were born. Let's take a short break to hear another installment of Wessel's Economic Update. I'm David Wessel, and this is my Economic Update. The Federal Reserve has not cut interest rates yet, disappointing President Trump, who's been loudly calling for rate cuts. But the Fed sent a strong signal recently that it expects to cut rates later this year, perhaps as soon as the end of July, because of what Fed Chair Jay Powell called cross-currents in the economy. One of those cross-currents is that the Fed believes prices are rising too slowly. It wants more inflation. Now, to those of us who've been around the Fed for a couple of decades, like me, this is still jarring. After all, the whole point of having a politically independent central bank like the Fed is to resist inflation. And for most of the late 20th century, the Fed was trying to push the rate of inflation down. But we live in unusual times. The Fed's mandate is maximum sustainable employment and price stability. That's what Congress told it to do. And the Fed defines price stability as 2% inflation. But it has been unable to get inflation sustainably up to 2% for years. It got pretty close last year, but lately inflation has cooled off. The underlying pace is around 1.7% to 1.8%. That wasn't anticipated, and it's causing some angst at the Federal Reserve. Why is that? Does anybody really want prices to go up more? Well, yes. First of all, the Fed is looking not only at prices but wages, which have been slow to rise despite very low unemployment. The Fed believes that its credibility with the public and the markets depends on delivering on its objective, 2% inflation. If it fails, people might overreact when something happens, a weather-related spike in food prices or some plunge in oil prices. The Fed wants Americans to be confident that it'll keep the economy stable with inflation around 2%, and if it can't deliver on that, people may doubt both its commitment and its capacity. What's more, while too much inflation is an economic problem, Too little inflation brings the economy uncomfortably close to deflation, or falling prices. And once that happens, as Japan demonstrates, an economy can struggle, and borrowers can have a hard time paying back loans. And also, if inflation gets too low, then interest rates get really close to zero. And that limits the Fed's ability to cut interest rates, as it usually does in a recession. So the Fed is determined to get inflation up. But why is it having trouble? Why the inflation surprise? Why aren't wages and prices rising as expected? That's a question a lot of economists, including some of us at Brookings here, are pondering. There are several possible explanations. Perhaps globalization has made it much harder for anyone to raise prices. Or maybe it's technology, the rise of online retailers. Consumers can shop around so easily it's hard for any one of them to raise prices. Or maybe it's the gig economy. Or maybe the unemployment rate is misleading us, and there's still lots of workers on the sidelines or lots of part-timers who want to work longer hours, so employers simply don't have to raise wages in order to get workers to work for them. Or maybe it has something to do with the waning clout of unions and the rising power of some employers. 
The thing that's interesting is it's not only a U.S. phenomenon. It's global. Inflation in Japan and in Europe also has been stubbornly below their central bank's target. So watch the inflation rate. That'll tell you whether the Fed is doing its job and whether it's going to have to cut interest rates soon in order to reach its objective. The book is rich in discussing the rise of nationalism throughout the world, and so I'm going to not do it justice with the questions I'm going to be asking, because you also, in your history of nationalism, you credit with the birth of capitalism, empire, cultural achievements, including modern science, much of this happening in the England in which nationalism was born. And then there's also the nationalism that emerges in France, which is different from the British nationalism. You go on to talk about Russian nationalism, too. But I wanted to bring our focus back to the United States where we have our own form of nationalism. And there's a quote from you where you write, there's an unbroken continuity between English and American nationalism. And I wanted to ask, what constitutes that continuity? Well, English nationalism, the original English nationalism, was individualistic and civic. There are other types of nationalism, and this depends on how the nation, the community of the nation, is imagined, and uh, what are the criteria of membership in the nation. Now, in England, because of all this interesting development with the Wars of the Roses and the rise of the new aristocracy, nationalism reflected exceptional individual experiences. And for this reason, the emphasis in this new perspective, this new consciousness, was on the individual. The nation, therefore, was this sovereign community of fundamentally equal members, which was also equated with the people. because The people before nationalism was defined as the common people, that is, as the lower classes, as the rebel, the plebs. But then, after the Wars of the Roses and destruction of the feudal aristocracy, physical destruction of the feudal aristocracy in England, members of the people, of the lower classes, kind of by default became upwardly mobile. They had to rationalize this for themselves and their rationalization took the form of the equation of the concept of the people, this rebel, with the concept of nation, which at that time meant a very exclusive elite. So they basically said, oh, the English people is an elite. And this made all the Englishmen equal, all the English individuals, members of this community, now could be whatever they wanted to be in this community Mm -hmm. because they were interchangeable. They were fundamentally equal. And the nation was conceived of as a community of such individuals, an association of such free individuals, individuals free to decide what actually they want to do 
and at the same time individuals who were sovereign, who were self-governing and therefore capable in participating in the government of the community. So the word nation itself and the word people were plural nouns. They corresponded to the pronouns of we and they. And you can see this in the founding documents, Mm -hmm. in American founding documents. We are talking about the people as we, the people, not as a single collective individual, as it happened in so many later developing nations. Right. I see. There's a line later in the book, too, about American nationalism, and I'll quote it, that it remains the main source of social cohesion in the United States and the main stimulant of unrest in it. That appears to capture this moment in time so well. Can you explain why this contradictory hold on us? It is because we believe very strongly, perhaps more strongly than any other nation, any other people, in the values of equality and freedom, the equality of individuals, all individuals, and freedom of every individual to decide what to be, what to do with one's life. Mm -hmm. Those are our values. So they are the most important element of cohesion in our society. But it is precisely those values, you know, the emphasis that every individual should be treated as equal to every other individual. And every individual has the same freedom to be whatever he or she desires to be. That is very divisive. It creates constant competition, right? Mm -hmm. Precisely those values that hold us together, they at the same time put us constantly in competition and in a very savage competition with each other, right? Yes. Yes. Exactly the same values that create the sentiment of envy and make this sentiment such a powerful force in our society. Pitching groups of individuals against each other constantly because there is never complete equality, but for us, equality is such an important value that we cannot tolerate any inequality. It's such an irritant for us, for Americans, that we feel we must do everything to immediately correct every particular inequality that we see. Mm-hmm. And that is, of course very, very divisive. We are unable to see behind all that. We are unable to see the common good precisely because those are our very important values. We are perfectionists in that. We are perfectionists in our nationalism. Perfectionists in our nationalism. There's another term that's been floating about recently in the United States too, this idea of white nationalism. What does it mean to its adherence, and is it actually a nationalism? Well, as you see, every specific nationalism has to be studied in its specificity. That is, you have to talk to people who believe themselves 
to be white nationalists. And only after talking to them and analyzing what they're saying, they, people who believe themselves to be white nationalists, you can make generalizations about this particular nationalism. Mm -hmm. Just as I was doing about English nationalism and French nationalism and Russian nationalism, this is all based on the primary sources of describing people or written by people who considered themselves those kind of nationalists. So I have never talked to somebody who is a white nationalist, who believes himself or herself to be a white nationalist. So I cannot tell you empirically what it is. From what it seems to me, it is rather a projection of certain people who do not want nationalism, American nationalism, to be defined on the basis of belonging to a particular majority group in the American population. The only common characteristic of which is the color of their skin. Mm. It shouldn't be. In fact, the color of skin is not a characteristic which in itself produces an identity. Identity is never based on a physical characteristic. Only when a certain physical characteristic is assigned cultural significance, only then an identity can be based on that characteristic. So physical characteristics in themselves are not important. They do not produce an identity. So it sounds more like a racialist ideology more than a nationalism. Well, in fact, it is a racialist ideology in the sense that if it is true, as it seems to me, you see, I never talk to anyone who says, hi, I am a white nationalist. But I talk to people who believe that there is white nationalism and who do not think well of it. Mm -hmm. So it is a racialist ideology on the part of those people because they think that the color of one's skin can produce an identity. If it does produce an identity, you know, anyone who would believe oneself to be a white nationalist would be a racist. And anyone who believes that the color of skin can produce an identity would be a racist. Mm -hmm. That is true. Now, this would be actually a type of nationalism which is very different from the original American nationalism, which is individualist and not an ethnic nationalism. In Germany and in Russia, you had from the very beginning the development of an ethnic nationalism where membership was defined by blood, by physical characteristics. In America, originally, 
Nobody would consider physical characteristics a criterion of membership Mm -hmm. in the nation. And this, our laws, for example, they are still completely blind to physical characteristics. The laws are blind. One can, somebody who wants to become an American has the right to ask for the inclusion and usually would get the inclusion in the American nation. In fact, we are a nation of immigrants. All of us are voluntary Americans. We are not born Americans. We are not born with certain physical characteristics. We are Americans because we want to be Americans. Yes, the sweepings of every country, as Joyce once said. The book itself is a fascinating account of how nationalism has emerged and defined the modern world, is the definition of the modern world. I'm appreciative of you writing it for the press. I think it gives an eye-opening understanding and appreciation of that nationalism isn't something that was of the past, that it's always here, that it always will be, you think. You said you weren't willing to project into the future. And I want to thank you for taking the time today to talk to us about the book and giving us a little slice of it. Well, thank you very much. You can find the book Nationalism, A Short History by Leah Greenfeld on the Brookings website or wherever you like to get books. The Brookings Cafeteria Podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, starting with audio engineer Gaston Reberedo and producer Chris McKenna. Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does many of our book interviews, and Lizette Baylor and Eric Abalahin provide design and web support. And thanks to our intern this summer, Betsy Broadus. Finally, my thanks to Camilo Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, The Current, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. <laughs>